And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back with another episode of the Startup Hustle. This is your host today, Matt Watson. Very excited to be joined with by Owen Matthews today and his company, Point. Um, he's done a lot of other really interesting things in his background. Uh, excited to get into into that. And Point sounds like a really fascinating company. Raised over $100 million in equity, which is crazy to me. So excited to hear uh, what they're spending all that money on. Uh, so to, before we get started, today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by Fullscale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult. Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has the platform to help you manage that team. Visit Fullscale.io to learn more. Owen, welcome to the show, man. Matt, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, so tell us a little more about your background and, and Point and, and what you guys do. Sure. So I think the critical part of my background is I'm a Irish farmer's son and came to the U.S. after college. And most of my career here has been sort of entrepreneurial, like very quickly transitioned from a corporate world into entrepreneurship. Um, Point, founded in 2015, is probably the fourth or fifth startup that I've been involved in. And I would say we were in our mid-30s when we started the business, and it represented that phase of our life, as in housing was important. Like you think about different things at different phases of your life and have different priorities. And we were lucky enough, Eddie and I, to have had some successes. And so we were both looking at starting new businesses. We'd worked together before we founded our first business together in 2003. So we really knew each other. And Eddie was somebody I really wanted to work with again. And home equity was really important to us in our lives. That there was stuff happening personally. Um, and actually, it was, a, it was an interesting experience because... Eddie came and proposed the idea, but what he didn't know is three weeks prior, I had actually exited my first home equity investment transaction. And he just had no clue in it. He came with a fully formed idea about doing this new class of product. I actually had helped my friends make down payment on their home in 2011, really close. My old roommates from Boston in the early 2000s, this couple, he'd been to MIT and an Italian wife, and they wanted to buy a home in 2011 in the Boston suburbs. And they had the bright idea of calling me up and saying, hey, Owen, will you make down payment? Um, and you'll own a fraction of the home. We didn't tell the lender. There actually was no contract. Um, I just wired them the money a couple of months before closing so that it seasoned out and it looked like their own deposits. And they bought the home. And the deal was I own 16% of it. Okay. And I didn't know when they were going to sell it. And they're very close friends. I don't do this for anybody. Very, very close friends. I was gonna, uh, I was gonna ask if you could do that for me, but okay. <laughs> if you ask nicely, if you ask nicely, <laughs> at this point, sign a big contract. Um, and then in 2014, Johnny and Francesca, they they actually moved out to the Bay Area and sold the home in Boston, and the home had appreciated not a ton, but had done pretty well. 
and I got to share money back. And I thought this is really fascinating, but I didn't think of it as a business. I just thought, hey, I, I would do this again. And honestly, next time I do it, I'm definitely going to have a contract because uh, I should and paid taxes on it. And But literally three weeks later, Eddie was like, hey, I've got this idea that we should look at. And it was exactly this. It was exactly home equity investments. And he had thought about the idea a lot more. And so that started it. That was September or maybe August 2014. And from there, we started building it. And I would say this is really interesting experience, unlike any business I've been part of, because we're building an asset class. Yeah. And, and that sounds like a cliche, but I've realized now what that means over time. It's like, it's not just that it's a new product for homeowners. An asset class means you're creating the financing for it. Because we went to investors in 2015. I don't mean equity investors. I don't mean Sand Hill Road. I mean going to Wall Street. And they're like, this is nuts. You guys have no experience in mortgages. You're not going to give me a monthly payment. And I don't understand anything about this. This is not like anything we've ever seen. And you guys don't seem like the right people to do it. So, 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 so that's where so we started. To, yeah. So to kind of recap and, and rephrase this, make sure I'm on the same page, right? It's like, I own a house. I have 100000 in equity, a million in equity, whatever it is, right? Instead of getting a home equity loan, I could use your guys' platform and get the cash that I need. And ultimately, there's an investor on the other side that now owns a portion of my house, right? Like that's that's the premise of it? It's, it's a, That's a good simplified version. I'd put it even simpler. So it's a 30-year term contract. There are a lot of homeowners who want to get a lump sum of equity out of their home, but don't want monthly payments. So this is the product without a monthly payment. And instead, uh, instead of it having an interest rate, what we're going to get is a share of appreciation on the home. And, and this is really unique, as in we share an appreciation, but we also share in depreciation. So if the home value is to decline, you're going to be paying us back less than you got originally. And I'll put asterisks on that, like that, that deserves further examination. Yeah. So there's, you know, in a loan, usually if you go back to the lender and say, hey, I'm going to pay, pay you back less, the economy hasn't been good, life hasn't been good, home, home prices depreciated, the lender is going to go, you owe me the same amount of money you always owed me. It doesn't really matter. Circumstances don't matter. This is an alignment product and a flexibility product. So as well as having no monthly payments for 30 years and completely different form of evaluation, it's not a credit evaluation, it's an equity evaluation, and the product shares risk. It's true risk sharing. So we share in the upside or the downside. And if it's downside, you're paying us back. Um, you're paying us back less than you got originally. We can be wiped out. And that's not an event of default. So so ultimately what you have to create is a marketplace, right? You've got to, you've got to get enough homeowner, homeowners that are willing to do this. But then you've got to have all the investors on the other side that are willing to put up the capital. Or if you found like big banks or like a large fund or hedge fund or something that will fund this on the other side. Yeah, that's a, a fantastic question. So... We thought at the start that Wall Street would line up to buy the product. We just thought it was such a no-brainer. We had all the models. We thought we understood it really well. And somebody very early on, an institutional investor said, you guys are going to have to do this for two years at least, do a few hundred of them, and show them that all your ideas work, that homeowners want this, that they understand this, and that it performs. And... We kept on calling other investors, but that person, that investor who actually came in the platform very early was spot on correct. I mean, literally took us three years to get our first major institutional investor. So we had to figure out pretty early to go, well, if the institutional investors, the big investors, the Wall Street investors won't buy these assets, how do, how do we get the money? And so we actually started off with a friends and family fund. Um, 
we raised a little bit of equity capital for the business. And then we went out to everybody we know and everybody who they knew who did refer to us and said, hey, will you invest in this? And we put it into a fund, a little bit like a venture fund, but this one was purely for investing in this type of product. Initially, it was $5 million. Um, we put in a, our own, a bit of our own money as well. And then we got it to $10 million, then $15 million. And that's what got us through the first few years to demonstrate a track record for Wall Street. And um, those investors did well. The homeowners were very grateful. And it took that because we were absent the personal track records, it took us three pretty long years to do this at very small volume to demonstrate that our ideas and our operating practices were top notch, like that we were on, we were right. And then 2018, we got our first institutional investor and that's somebody we'd known for a few years who was really strong at early fintech asset classes. And they came in and said, we'll buy 150 million of these. We'll wow. you, you keep originating. That seems like a lot, but in reality, if you're that's giving nothing home, in real estate, it's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And so now the product is maturing to the point where it's billions per year. And we see the demand there for homeowners for originating tens of billions. And so it's a really, that's where it's an asset class now. And that's where, to your point earlier, that's where banks will become, begin to come in and finance the asset, which has happened. That's where securitizations happen. And you wow. begin to get liquidity, price gets cheaper for homeowners, and it gets organized and efficient. And that took, um, you know, we're, we're sort of at that crossing the chasm moment for this as an asset class, but that took eight years for this product. So you're an overnight success. Yeah. Every, every part of it. <laughs> you know, the, the key part of that story, right, is the first three years of this, you had to grind with almost no progress, like very little progress, right? Like just trying to prove the model, right? Like everybody's just sitting around waiting for this thing for three years to figure out, does this thing work? before you can really grow to the next stage, right? Because everybody just wants to wait and see. Exactly. And I think the part of that that's hard to um, fathom is you don't know that you're in the three years. You always think, because you can't, you, like nobody logically goes, well, I'm going to spend the next three years doing a proof concept unless they're yeah. not, like, it's not a, it's not a startup-y thing to do. And we certainly didn't think that. And we certainly didn't tell our venture investors, but you realize, I think the smart ones understood it. And some very patient investors that we have on our cap table were like, this is going to be a, a long exercise. So yeah, that's where, we're, that's where we were. But we were always trying to get the big investors along yeah. the way. That's, um, but I mean, for those that are listening, like that's the brutal reality of this for, for some companies that it's like, sometimes it's, it's just, it just takes the time and you just have to put in the time. And then some people just quit before they get there, right? Like that you, you guys put in the time. Yeah, so, we put in the time and we, and we were fortunate enough to have the backers that we could continue to put in the time yeah. and the personal resources. If it had been a different phase of our life, we couldn't have done that. So let me ask you this. You guys have now raised, like you said, now you're originating billions of dollars a year in loans. You've raised $169 million. Congrats on that. That's a lot of money. So was any of that money used for originating the loans or this was all operating capital in the business? All operating capital in the business. We we do not retain any balance sheet risk on the assets. So we sell these to institutional investors at origination. Okay. Um, so yeah, the, so the, the money, the operating company money is for balance sheet strength and to make this as seamless and cost effective and painless a process for both homeowners and investors as possible. So... I mean, th this is a fascinating asset class. So if, if I'm an investor, I'm like, hey, I want to go invest a million dollars in this, like instead of buying stocks, instead of buying rental properties or multifamily home or all these other things, 
I'm going to do this. How, what, and can, can, an, can an individual investor do this at this point? Or is it only these institutions? Um, it's a mix. Individual investors would typically be participating through funds. And, okay. the funds are, and there are some funds out there specializing in this. And okay. so if I'm an individual investor with a disposable 1 million who wants um, the type of yields we offer, that this product would be expected to yield, then you'd call us up and we'd point you to a fund manager who would say, this is the right size of person to work with. And I would say that world has gone very efficient. Like the fund managers are that we work with and okay. who specialize in this are very, very strong. So there are, there are some funds that, that listeners, if they wanted to, could track down yes. and, and get, get in on this. So how, how, what is the rate of return of this look like, right? Because obviously there is definitely downside risk. And now that you've been doing this for several years, what, what does that rate of return look like? Well, talk about the historicals. It's an interesting product in the structure of it because you know most people are going to go right now, home price appreciation, I've read the headlines. That doesn't sound exciting. And so structurally, even from day one of the product, we actually have always been anticipating a, a downturn in the property markets right since 2015. Actually, when we started, I remember lots of investors like, we've already seen six years of home price appreciation. Property works on seven-year cycles. There's something around the corner. And lots of investors were talking about waiting, waiting it out. And so we have a, what we call a risk adjustment, which is really a discount to the appraised value of the home. And so that's a big feature of our product. And that's a big part of our risk management framework. Because we got to figure out home prices are generally established in our product through appraisal. Appraisals are highly imperfect and time lag oh, yeah. processes. And so there's a lot of volatility on appraisals, with, especially in the short term, like within a one to two year framework, time frame, like you can be off. In fact, we have reordered appraisals on many properties. Like we go through a, like elaborate, very comprehensive quality control. And we've seen instances where even within a two-week period, three different professional appraisers will have a total variance of like 30%. Wow. So that's, yep. that's rare, but we've seen it. And you have to build up the processes to know which of those three, if any of them were right. That's 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 the key. But um, So we discount the home value at day one to take away some of that short-term risk. And, and that, from an investor perspective, that locks in some of the gains. From a homeowner perspective, that can make the product seem expensive. And so on the flip side, we limit the cost of the homeowner. So we go, this is not going to cost you more than a loan at X percent interest rate. And that X percent is going to be set by an algorithm. But we want to make sure the cost is not egregiously expensive. And okay. From This is a long-winded way of then getting to answer your question. So hopefully people are still listening. So what would I expect if I was historically buying points assets, I probably would have realized gains. In other words, from homeowners that have exited, that would have been in the mid-teens on levered. So net, and those would be net returns. And we typically advertise this if we're talking publicly about it. Well, we don't advertise it because we don't raise our own funds. But if I were to look at sort of how our, our investors look at it, some investors would conservatively put this as a net 10 IRR asset. So net 10 after everything. And some investors okay. would be targeting a, a 12 to 15 in the current environment. Okay. So then how does liquidity work with this? So I give you a million dollars. Am I, is it stuck for 30 years? Like what, how does liquidity of this work? Uh, yeah. It sounds like you've done this before, Matt. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a great question. No, I've, I've, I've invested in a lot of startups that have no liquidity. <laughs> <laughs> I just pray that I will get anything back like before I die. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so this is a really fascinating part of the product, which is it's a 30 year term contract and homeowners get a lot of flexibility with it, no monthly payments, but a lot of homeowners are motivated to pay this. This, this serves a short term, a relatively short term um, value prop to the homeowner. So we see a lot of homeowners use this and go, okay, I just want to do that home improvement job. I don't want to get a loan on it, or I don't want to refi the mortgage right now. Maybe I'm doing a bit of work before I sell it, whatever it is. Or it might be a homeowner goes, oh, I've got the credit card debts and personal loan bills. I don't want to pay them for a few months. And, and so they'll use it as relatively short duration. So that's a long-winded way of saying we see prepays on this about 20% per year. I'm going to use that as a rough guess, but even in the current rate environment. Okay. So that, so that means there's a lot of current pay. The weighted average life, and we're getting into sort of mortgage talk here that I'll try to avoid, but a weighted average life, you might expect the average duration on these products. Maybe that's easier to sort of process, but it's like four or five years. It's going to be the average across the portfolio. So 50%, your capital would be typically we expect to be returned between years three and four. And then everything after that is gravy. And that's like half of the customer base. So for if if I invested one of these funds though, is there a way to get like immediate liquidity, or no. is it there, there's not? Well, it depends on the it depends on the fund manager. Some of them will okay. offer more typical liquidity if you need to get your money out. I'd imagine if I was running a fund, okay. that there would be punitive costs to releasing it because it's a longer duration product. What's again getting back to the asset class question though, because securitizations are beginning to happen, that's more the strategy at the fund level, which is okay. aggregate season a little bit and then sell the assets so most fund investors would probably anticipate a hold here of five to three to five years well i um i have a lot more questions for you but before that i do want to remind everybody that finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult especially when you visit fullscale.io where you can build a software team quickly and affordably use the fullscale platform to define your technical needs and then see what developers are available to join your team visit fullscale.io to learn more so mike my question for you is, so what was it like to building a new market? Like you're building something new. Nobody has ever done this before, right? Or had other people done this before? There'd be nothing at scale. There'd be, you're going to have a few examples, which I think is typical for a lot of stuff is there's um, this these product structures have existed in one form or another for a while, but there's nothing at scale. And so investors and homeowners, it was largely completely new to them. So it's, and that makes it really, really difficult, right? So that's why it yes. took you three years of really proving it out and then kind of probably slowly growing it. And now it's probably growing a little more rapidly, right? But it was extremely difficult creating a brand new market, I would imagine. Yeah. And if we were to go back in time, it's actually a discussion I've had recently, but um, this is a big part of your selection of co-founders is there are people in the room who you know well, like that, that would hopefully be helpful. And you go, I want to go to battle with them. And I think that was the case with me and Eddie. But if, if you go back and go, who do you want in the room? I would probably now say, and I think Eddie would definitely say, hey, we should have got a capital markets guy who, who had credibility with Wall Street. And there are lots of people, but you then need someone who has so much credibility that they can bring in a large investor to accelerate it. Absent that, there's no other path than the one we took, which is to do it slow and steady. So this is a big part of sort of your founder, it's decisions that you make early on about who's in the room. And if that expertise doesn't exist, you're going to have a slow, long process because you have to prove yourself in this new category. If you hold a lot of credibility, if somebody had been coming from a large, if somebody had been coming from Blackstone with the relationships, could they have done it quicker? Could they have gotten a warehouse line 
perhaps. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's no portfolio manager at Blackstone that just issues out $100 million checks willy-nilly. But if it's somebody they know and understand and has credibility in that space, then the path might have been very different. Yeah, I just, I've, I kind of went through this my, myself, like creating a product that it's like the market didn't know what it was. Like nobody, nobody buys this thing, right? So mm-hmm. it's like that, that is by far one of the most difficult things as an entrepreneur is to invent something new in a new market, new vertical that just people don't know what it is. They don't know what to do with it. It's not something they buy. So it's just, it's very difficult. Yeah. So we had one experience earlier in career, which sort of shows this dynamic as well, but and shows maybe a way to solve it. Um, and this is the precursor to the company SendGrid. We were actually the very first version of that business. We were trying to sell concert tickets for concerts that didn't exist. And so the idea was, what if you get a, a enough of a concentration of people in one area to put money down to say, I will pre-order a ticket for XYZ concert. And then you go to a promoter and say, hey, we've got a concentration here. This show should definitely happen. That was really hard. <laughs> that was exceptionally hard. And the, the irony is the most valuable thing that happened out of that was Isaac was like, figured out, wow, sending an email and getting it delivered is really hard. That was like the most hard. valuable thing we did right then. But we had customers buying tickets. But as a marketplace, that market wasn't enough scale on the home, on the purchase side. There weren't like that passionate of concert fans who would do it in scale and buy a ticket for a concert and go, I'll buy a ticket and not know when it's going to be scheduled. So we couldn't form that marketplace. On the point side, it actually, in some respects, is easier because you actually, we only just needed to solve for the capital initially. And, and we found this in the early stages is the problem of the marketplace swung from one side to the other. Sometimes we didn't have enough capital. And sometimes you're like, I don't know where the customers are going to come from because you had to scale up customer acquisition. You hadn't done that volume before. But it was actually much more easy with point in many respects because you could methodically go through and go, well, capital. And then it swings to customers. And then we go, okay, we're too many customers. We need more capital. Yeah. And it's a marketplace. Yeah and, yeah. and it's graduated to that point now where there's real scale to it. And it's not to say those problems go away, but it's, um, it feels like less of a pendulum. Um, and something like um, our early version, our pre-SendGrid company, which was actually called Not Paul for, for terrible branding. <laughs> um, and not, that Isaac can definitely blame me for that one. Um, but we could never get that marketplace going to enough. Like, and we had people buying tickets, which in itself was insane. The idea that somebody, a no-name brand, and they go, I will buy a ticket for Neutral Milk Hotel. I was like one of the bands. Or I will buy, and it was typically, we focus on reunion acts because we figured that's you get the most fashion, passionate fans. We could, just couldn't get that threshold. And what I find interesting in hindsight is nearly every one of the acts that we focused on, within three or four years, and the Coachella promoters, Golden Voice, had just booked them and gotten them to get back together and they'd performed at Coachella. And I use that as like that marketplace exists and the promoters serve a function and that they can bring people on mass together and make the make the financing happen of shows where it was very, very hard for us um, at that time to do these crowdfunded concerts. So so tell us more about SendGrid because so for those who don't know a lot about SendGrid that are listening, SendGrid is a, a tool that was primarily sold, I would say, to software developers, to the tech community. I used SendGrid, oh my God, almost 15 years ago. When did, when did you guys start SendGrid? 2008, 7-8 would really be the yeah. genesis of it. So we're, we're talking, I mean, so I was using it 14, 15 years ago, about that time, um, at Venn Solutions, because we were sending emails for car dealers to consumers. And yeah, sending email and trying to 
do that at scale across, you know, we had a couple thousand customers sending emails, like a CRM system sending emails. And then, you know, everybody'd go in and want to send a Black Friday sale email or whatever. Like it was a total nightmare trying to send email. And so we found SendGrid eventually and quickly started using that because it was a godsend for us. And so so for those who aren't familiar, that's what SendGrid is. It was a, it's super popular. It's, it's definitely one of the, the top couple things in the industry that people use. It's very well known across software developers. So it's super cool that you were, were part of that. So tell us a little more about being at SendGrid in early days. You, you, you mentioned like kind of what was the original genesis of it, and then it turned into SendGrid. So yeah, tell us more I, about SendGrid. It, it's fascinating because in hindsight, there's also a question of when you leave businesses and that was a business I left at exactly the wrong moment, like quite honestly. And I'll get to that in the story, which, you know, we were, we were, Isaac was somebody who I'd met. I actually think met through Craigslist. I was looking for developers to help work on this idea that I'd had. I'd been through startups. And this is the idea where you're like, I'll, I'll try Craigslist. And that's where we connected. And I love the guy. He was phenomenal. Like not just phenomenal as a coder, but just as a person, Isaac Saldana. And um, we worked on this project for the concert tickets for probably six months. And then we tried even pivoting into other stuff, but in some respects, I think the ideas were more obscure and weirder, but along the way we figured out delivering email was a hassle and Isaac had come up with a robust system to get the email delivered. And at that time, Techstars was just getting started and Isaac was like, Hey, I want to, I want to put our name in the hat for this accelerator. I was like, cool. And he had some developers from UC Riverside that he knew from the college and he was really close with and and a pretty awesome team. But the pitch early on was, hey, we've emailed deliverability and I think it was called SMTP API. Again, we weren't good at branding, so it was SMTP API was the, was the original name of it. Maybe literally, it literally what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and... I think what was, and so my ending actually here was getting into Techstars. We met, I think the Techstars guys at LAX, I remember a meeting and it was like, okay, going to go to Boulder. And I had an opportunity to do something else. And so I was like, you know what? Email deliverability isn't my thing. That was it. And the reason I said no in hindsight was I asked a bunch of people who I knew were at email delivery companies right then. And they were like, this is a crowded space. Email delivery sucks. And why Sangrid really works is very revealing about like really understanding markets. And it's that the, and it's something the Techstars team at that time, the early Techstars team had sold an email business to Google. They really understood email. And so maybe that is number one recommendation. If you've got an investor who's in that domain and is excited about your business, you should be excited about your business. Like that, that's a really positive signal. And what they realized was there was a possibility for a new class of email that wasn't marketing email that had to get your inbox. It was order confirmation, registration emails that were just much more valuable. But that actually, yeah, that these transactional and people would pay a premium to get that email delivered. And you just would have actually have all the problems of whitelisting would sort of be eliminated because the only people who would use it, well, all the guys who want to send marketing email would try but the people using their service would only be sending transactional emails. So it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy is you're getting the good emails that people want because they have registered for your sites because they have placed the order. And so that was big insight. Number one is there's a new class of email and separating it out related to that was, and sort of similar to Stripe success. There was a new class of founder 
because of mobile more than anything else, that was much more a developer founder. There was a little bit of that starting. AWS existed, but developers as customers didn't exist. So when I went and checked with everybody in the industry, whether email delivery deliverability was the thing, they were all marketing and business executives. They weren't developers working in their garage on mobile apps. But with the mobile growth, you had this whole class of new products that needed to deliver millions of registration emails, like just new customers registering. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it was the it was brand new businesses getting started who were like, I don't want to go through the hoops of getting approved to be whitelisted. I don't want I, I want this to be simple and an API. And sort of similar to Stripe, they rode on the back of this new class of customers. Customers who, if you were to go to your VC and go, they go, okay, segment the market of email. How are you going to get into Walmart? They send a lot of emails. And your answer would be, Walmart isn't my customer. My customer doesn't even exist. They're in a bedroom right now. It would take a rare VC in 2008 to go, oh, I get it. You're serving the new wave of businesses. They had to really understand the developer as founder economy to know that that was a real customer. And and I think the Techstars team really did. An SMTP API, which then became Sangrid, really capitalized on that. The customers were pure developers it was developer to developer sales, which means you didn't have an enterprise sales cost. Right. Everybody was selling email delivery yeah. right now. They had sales teams. They I never talked I never talked to somebody on the phone from Syncrit. <laughs> and if you wanted to, they did it really well, but you didn't need to. The product just yeah. worked. The yeah. product just worked. It was product led growth. Yeah. And I, and that was the first few years of Syncrit. And I, you know, I feel very grateful like for the time working with Isaac because I got to stay close to a business then rapidly growing. But I mean, that just blew up so quickly. So you so you left the company once it got into Techstars or when did you? Yeah, leave? we got approval and um, I left and I knew I was going and I actually returned to Rakuten Buy.com to launch European division of the company. I'd, they'd acquired a, pre, a company that I'd founded in 2003. And so I'd been there three or four years, left to start this concert ticket business with Isaac. And then a few years into it, I was like, okay, I've burned through a lot of my money. Um, it's getting close to that point where I just need stability again. And so I jumped out right at that point and we get into Techstars. So did, did you did you end up owning part of Syngrid though in the end of it? I can't talk about it, but I'll tell you my name isn't in the IPO docs, so you can get a sense there. Dang. All right. So for those who are listening, Syngrid sold to Twilio for $3 billion. After it had IPO'd, it had IPO'd for one, two or one, three, and then Twilio bought it a couple of years later. Okay. Yeah. Afterwards. Okay. So you, I didn't realize that Syngrid IPO'd first. Yep. Okay. Great, and great company, great team. They built it. I will say this is a good sort of personal reflection on Syngrid, which is it's sometimes really useful to be close to a business that succeeds because it adds a lot of humility for yourself of your role in it and what your importance can be in different businesses. And um, and that was certainly a moment there. It was like, in hindsight, I don't think I would have added a ton to Sengrid's business. I might have been, you know, Isaac might have said, hey, I'm CEO. I might have been an impediment to their growth. <laughs> and so you, you, it's, a, it's a useful for reflection to go through. And I've been adjacent to a few businesses that have succeeded. And you're like, I don't know if I'd have contributed. And then I've been involved in some business where you're like, oh, I was, I was essential. I, I knew my worth in those instances. It's just, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting story, right? It's like, you were basically one of the founders of a company that went public, eventually sold for $3 billion, but you didn't end up being part of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Basically, right? like it's a, uh, I, I mean, would you call it a near miss? What would you call it? Oh, well, it's a home run for everybody who stayed involved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for you, but for you, it was a near miss. Here, here's the flip side to that is, um, you can say near miss financially. So you can, I can yeah. 
I can qualify exactly what that um, financial impact is. Would it have changed my life? It would have changed my life. I don't know if it changed my life in a positive way in hindsight, because you just look at the how the cards have crumbled in my own life. I go, okay, I've been super fortunate. And, and maybe what I'd have to say is I would have been fortunate either way, but um, I don't feel unlucky because of it. But where you feel, where you should feel unlucky with any instance is if you walk away from the growth experience, because the fast growing company is a strap in, figure it out. It really demands a lot of you. And that part, um, if I if I contrast it with what we were doing in Europe with the the job I went to, there was st- more stability. Like the founder part, ex- the excitement in the founder part is not having the parachute, not having the safety net, and so that would have been fun to be part of. Well, so let's go back to to point for a minute. So I'm I'm curious how did how did you guys figure out the go to market strategy for people that are doing the home equity side of this? Like, what how did you crack that side of the market? I think that was evident to us very early on. And a simple way of thinking about it is tons of people we knew would go, I went to get a HELOC and couldn't get one. Or I went to refi my mortgage and my lender told me X, Y, Z. And you're like, okay, there's a lot of people looking to get equity out of their home and getting turned down for different reasons. And 2014, 2015, the proximity, the sense of proximity to the great financial crisis was still strong. And so there was a broad sense of credit is very tight, but home prices had begun to recover. So we just knew there were a lot of people being declined. And then there are data sources. We could empirically measure that to go, okay, here's what the decline rates are at XYZ lender. On the customer side, then we just begin to to put your toe in the water. And the easiest way on the consumer acquisition side was begin to do some marketing next to adjacent products. So the adjacent products might be in the refi space, reverse mortgage, home equity loans. Just see what happens when you talk to customers who come through. Um, and then we did we tested many different channels and you you build up repetitions very quickly with talking to customers, see who gets engaged at relatively small volume and then market size out from them to go, are these representative of big enough market to have exciting business? And and the reality is very exciting business. Like it's a, it's a game changer for the initial customer segment. Where I think it's a fascinating product and where it goes mainstream is affordability isn't going to change. Like I feel like in the US, it actually has much better affordability than people realize relative to other developed economies. Yes. Like, like it's it, homes, just if, you, if you're sitting on the fence thinking homes are going to get more affordable, in the US, you, you should just run out and buy a home right now. And yeah. I'm not saying that because we just buy home shares in home appreciation. I'm saying it because uh, I was born in Ireland and I know how expensive homes are all over Europe because that's where my siblings are. And all of, like if you go to Australia, we study this stuff in the company. And what's interesting is pretty much every other developed economy has shared equity structures that are government sponsored. And that means that some third party money provider is helping you become a homeowner by providing you a cash strip to give down payment. And it's not a loan, uh, it's not a grant. Like, And it typically fa- takes this form of, well, we're gonna share in the appreciation on the home. That's probably not gonna happen in a government format in the US. So the private market's gonna come in and, and do that. And it'll start off, today the product has started off, I should say, with existing homeowners who really value extracting some money out to do the home improvements, to pay off the bills. What you're going to see in this product class is it being a down payment product and that'll go mainstream and it'll it'll take over. It'll take a huge chunk of the market and just normalize the whole class. 
Well, and I can confirm what you're saying. So our, our business full scale is based in the Philippines and, and we have 300 employees there and we have two floors of an office building there. And, you know, even though it's a developing country and yeah, the, the cost of living is, you know, 20% of what it is in the US or something like it's, it's dramatically less. The cost of real estate is not much cheaper. It's crazy expensive. Literally nobody that lives there uh, on their wages can afford to uh, own a, a home that resembles what you would normally see as a home here in the US. Like the, 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 the cost of housing there is crazy expensive. I own a home in the Philippines that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy how much real estate costs there, especially compared to their average, you know, uh, salaries there. So it, yeah. it's an absolutely insane. And I had, I had lunch with a guy yesterday from London and it's like, yeah, tiny little 600 square foot, two bedroom, more likely one bedroom, you know, condo, you know, apartment is like over a million dollars in London. You know, it's just like the cost is insane. And so, yeah, it's luckily in the U S we have a lot of real estate. <laughs> we have a lot of land. I should say there's still a lot of land to be developed in the Western U S if um, I guess if people want to build houses in Utah and Nevada and all these places that, that are more underdeveloped, but. Yeah, like I think you're spot on. Like this is a sort of global phenomenon in terms of the job con jobs are concentrated. I think where COVID was interesting is there's a moment in time where people are like, well, there's a lot of jobs we might be able to do them anywhere. And I think in the shakeup from that, that is true for a certain class of jobs. But what we're seeing now, certainly in New York and San Francisco, is the return of work is very strong. And so there's a lot of big corporate entities are sort of saying, actually, we want you all in the office and it's not just for um, for the sake of appearances or because we own the real estate. It's because we think for certain types of jobs, we are getting more value out of it and you are doing better work. And so I think that's where there is a differentiation going to be happen. A lot of people can do their job points are pretty much a remote first company. And then they're going to be employers that continue to pull people into big urban centers. And so if you want to work for those companies or have those opportunities, you're going to be in some of the most expensive real estate markets in the world. So where are uh, you guys have employees all over the U.S. Or, or do you guys have international customers, international employees too? Or the U.S. company, but all over all over the country. Yeah, all over the country. Yeah. Have are you guys able to sell your products internationally? Have you guys? We haven't. First of all, the U.S. is a huge market, and the other part of it is with real estate and especially a product structure like this. We effectively are in fifty countries. Like there are there are fifty one regulators in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And so you you have to go state by state, and we have you know we're a two hundred person company or two hundred and twenty, and we have a regulatory team that engage with regulators. We have a compliance team, and and, th and those are not one person teams; those are real teams. Yeah, and we're really good at that stuff. And that sounds crazy for a, a startup, like an eight year old startup, to say. But those are those are some of the most high value teams in the organization. They paved the path for us to bring a new product to market. And so getting through those 50 regulators, especially in the big states, big popular states is the most important. We are in 29, almost 30 states at this point. And so it's a big footprint, but we want to be national. And then if you go to other countries, you really have to look at the details in this, which is actually the mortgage. If you, if you go outside of the developed countries, the mortgage infrastructure isn't that developed in most other countries. So if I was going to go to uh, a developing market, I might actually want to start off with much more traditional products and um, like just get, get the debt capital efficient, get the title process efficient. And then equity, equity products would probably make more sense than once that debt infrastructure is probably properly established. And 
but yeah, so our, our main calling right now is certainly to just expand our footprint in the US and it's a it's a very big market for well, us. Well on the on the compliance side, you get you gotta deal with both sides of it. You gotta deal with the investor side and you gotta deal with the homeowner side both. So you're like double whammy on <laughs> compliance. <laughs> yeah, maybe a simple way. Everybody ends up actually asking the same questions, which is you want to make sure on a new product, especially one that's home centric and it's secured by people's homes, because there is a there's a lien on the property. Yeah. Everybody just wants to make sure the homeowner understands it. Like that's that's really and that they're getting a fair deal. And so that's the quintessential question that, is, that comes up, whether we're talking to uh federal regulator or state regulator or somebody on the financial side, you know. So they, they really want to believe that we have good intentions and they want to examine that. And we do. We're a very mission driven company. I I don't think I've been in any org where everybody in the organization takes pride on every funded customer. We're, we're doing a lot of it, but it matters a lot. Yeah, it matters a lot to um, our team and it matters a lot to the homeowners. So it feels like an important product. All right. Well, if you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders, FullScale can help. We have the people and the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit FullScale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions and let our platform match you up with our fully vetted, highly experienced team of experts. At FullScale, we specialize in building a long-term team that works only for you. You can learn more when you visit FullScale.io. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is this has been absolutely awesome. And, you know, you got you have spent years building a totally new market, a, to, a totally new investment class, which kudos to you, like seems like a, a huge challenge and compliance and all these things. So now do you have people that are that are starting to copy you guys and, and follow in your footsteps for this new asset class? Oh, of course. Yeah, there's a there's a field of comp- competition and, and that's healthy. And I think where it might have felt like it was easy to follow us. And now as it gets more institutional, it begins to feel like much more expensive to follow us. When you begin to have real regulation, when the capital markets has evolved, it's sort of actually pretty difficult to follow. And I think there are a handful of companies that are well-funded and well-structured. And if I'm a venture investor, it's difficult to follow the smaller companies at that point in time, because you begin to realize your, your companies are going to do multiple rounds of financing. They're going to need a lot of capital. Are the big investors going to be there? And um, so I think the field of competition is pretty well established at this point in time. And that's great. You want, you want There's to be, a lot of barriers to entry with this, with all the compliance and everything. Yeah, exactly. And then the securitization market will shake out where there are three or four issuers and we intend to be number one in the head of the field, but that's, that's going to be where it's at. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's simple for somebody else to come in afterwards. Um, it's just gotten expensive to do that. Yeah. It's very complex what you guys are doing. Yeah, I uh, I couldn't imagine having like all the lawyers and stuff that you have to have to deal with all this. <laughs> They're fantastic. You know, it, it's it's an interesting observation I've noticed in the past few years, which is that a lot of lawyers make for great coders when they leave the legal world. Sometimes this has happened, I think, increasingly, where law is almost like its own precise language, and I think they're logical. Yeah, very logical, and I think they yeah. make for great operators. Our um, general counsel, Matt Brady is effectively our COO of the business and he makes just a great operator. It's just somebody who can deconstruct a problem and loves new mental challenges and just just a fantastic operator. I've I've I'm probably unusual here where I've had two or three companies have been part of has have had lawyers in either CEO or COO position. And um 
when they're not doing law, they love the other stuff. <laughs> it's like it liberates them and they get to be super creative, but they, at the same time, they know the law. And yeah. That's important. All right. Well, as we wrap up the show today, do you have any other final tips, uh, words of wisdom for other entrepreneurs out there? Um, I think the number one thing that I would emphasize is that early team and having worked with a bunch of different co-founders along the way is it's somebody you have to have a ton of conviction around and be very deliberate about who you're going to be in the room and don't, you know, it's, it's your partner. It's somebody, they have to enjoy you and you have to enjoy them. You have to, you have to think highly of them. And then, and you have to, I think the complimentary aspect is very real too. If I take Eddie Lim, who's points CEO and my co-founder and myself, we, we are very complimentary in many ways. We think differently about problems. Um, Isaac and I couldn't have been more different. And so it was pretty effective as a, as a partnership. So pick your founders, pick your, pick your partners in crime. Okay. I got your joke for you today. The, the only kind of ship that doesn't sail is a partnership. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Partnerships are hard, man. Really hard. All, all the business partners I've ever had have always been <laughs> interesting for different reasons. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is Owen Matthews and his company Point. And uh, you can check him out at point.com. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Enjoy the call. Awesome. Thanks, Owen. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. <laughs>